0: There we are. Now I'm greeting those at home too. Ah, Well, there's nothing like planning for a while to have a kickoff Sunday and then spending the bulk of that week on your back in bed. I am sorry to be preparing my cold motif up here while we're talking, but that's the week we've had. Usually when we're trying to put together the verses that we're going to be reading together and that are going to be there, I think that generally they flow together in a way that seem eh, probably logical to you, that makes sense. I understand why he chose that passage and that passage and that passage. Other weeks it's probably a little bit less clear. And this might be one of those Sundays that's a little bit less clear. We had a text from Isaiah, a man who saw the glory of God and whose life was transformed because of what he saw. We had a repeat of the verse that we looked at last week from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. One of the more awkward moments in the book of Galatians. Not the most awkward, but one of the more awkward. We'll get to some better, more awkward moments uh, that you can look forward to. Um, But that's a weird one because two of the leaders had a tiff. And in sacred scripture the author decided to highlight that tiff and to make it public. If you want to know a little bit more of the background of that you can listen to what we talked about last week because we took a whole chunk of Paul's story where he said I was commissioned for this gospel this gospel that's unpopular in some circles and here's how I got to where I was but eventually then we had this quarrel and I need to let you know about it. The reason that He's trying to let them know about it is because it is in keeping with what he said in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Here was his word to them. I'm astonished that you, the Galatians, are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What we saw in those opening verses when we looked at Galatians two weeks ago was that that theme is really going to dominate what Paul wants to say to these folks in Galatia. Just to visit the map, so in case you're kind of new to this, um, where we're looking in the Mediterranean region, we're looking at what's labeled Asia on this map. It's more what would be Turkey. The region of Galatia kind of falls underneath what we see as Asia there. Jerusalem, and what you might think of as the hubbub of of biblical activity, falls down in the corner of Judea. And the question of the gospel so far is whether or not it can have multiple centers and multiple cities, Jewish or not, or whether it's a religion that really had to be Jewish, Jerusalem centric. Judea and the Jews centric, and if anybody wants to come to Jesus, they have to come to Judaism first. That seems to be one of the central themes of the book. And what Paul wants to say is to require people to come to Judaism before Jesus is to pervert the gospel, not just to pervert it, but to take the really good news that I've been giving my life to kind of proclaim and to alter it, to invalidate it, to sort of get rid of what I've been telling you and to invent a new message. And for Paul, nothing was more significant. We saw that two weeks ago when we realized that Paul's written to some really ugly churches all throughout the Old or the New Testament. There are different churches in different stages or phases of their purity or maturity. They're not doing well in some cases, but almost across the board, every single one of them, he tells them, Oh, grace to you and peace to you. And let me tell you how thankful I am for you. Except for with the Galatians, where he should tell them how thankful he is. Instead, he goes into this little tirade in verses 6 and 7. I'm astonished, not grateful. Why is he astonished? Because this message has been perverted. Now, what I told you when we were going to go through Galatians, that there's going to be a few little spots that we're just going to stop and pause because last week, when we saw this moment in chapter 2, we, um, we, we saw in, in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, this moment where Peter, or how he's labeled by Paul as Cephas, had been acting in a manner that was pretty hypocritical. That was the language that Paul used about it. So your behavior is two-faced. It it doesn't really hold true the way you're living to what you had already been saying. You had said that the gospel welcomes in the Gentiles, but now you're acting like they're not worthy. Let's visit that again. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, there's two ways of reading that. And ultimately, what I want you to know is that what we're going to talk about today, it doesn't really matter which way you read it. Here's the one way. This group, the certain men that came from James, and the other group, the circumcision party, we could view them as being the exact same group of people. Right, that's, that's really the traditional way that a lot of commentators would, would read this and view it. So men came from James, men came from Jerusalem to where they were in Antioch, and when they arrived, he w- Peter was afraid of what they thought of him, and so he stopped hanging out with the Gentiles because he was worried about his reputation. That's kind of option one. These are the same group, and Peter's afraid of what they think of him. What I told you last week is I think there was a pretty convincing interpretation that would actually see these as two different groups of people, that the people who come from James represent the believing church, the believing Jews, but that the circumcision party actually represents an entirely different group, unbelieving Jews with power to make the lives of the new Christians in Jerusalem uncomfortable. And so these people have come from Jerusalem, come from James, they come to Peter and they say, hey man your behavior is causing trouble for us down in Jerusalem and your behavior is making it's it's almost giving the circumcision party permission to persecute our friends down in Jerusalem and so out of safety out of concern for their safety could you just try to temper it back a little bit so that would be option 2 these are two gr- different groups and peter's concerned for his friends and what the circumcision party will do to them. Let's, let's think of them on kind of a spectrum. So if option one is that because they're the same group, they're kind of, this is just Peter being worried about his reputation. Or option two would be that Peter is actually afraid for his co-workers' safety. You might be tempted to think, I mean, one obviously puts Peter in a little bit more of a, a better light, Right? Here he's just a chicken worried about what people think of him, which is kind of hard to reconcile with the way we know Peter. So many other moments, it doesn't seem to matter at all to people what Peter thinks. And I I can't relate to that kind of a Peter. I can't relate to somebody who would have absolutely no concern of what other people think of him. I remember when I was in middle school, Uh, The school that I went to, it was a bit of a split level. Uh, The elementary was downstairs and the the high school was upstairs. I graduated with, yes, six other people in my class. So that's the kind of place we're talking about here. No powerhouse of a a school. Portersville Christian School had the elementary downstairs and the middle school and high school upstairs. And so, (coughs) sorry guys, if you don't like hearing somebody cough, you came to the wrong church today. Uh, so I was I was uh, entering into this split level entrance to to the school, and usually I would try to take the steps going up in as you know as few steps as I could. I think there was like six or seven to get upstairs, and so I'd bound, bound, bound and try to make it. And you know, a few of us thought it was kind of fun to sort of do the same thing going down too. You know, if you were going to run in downstairs, you'd kind of take that in as few and. After a little while it got kind of popular to just sort of leap the steps going down and just sort of see if you could make it but you can kind of understand the way that a split level works right you're coming in halfway between two floors right so if you're going to go down the stairs there's this little overhang right where that you'd be kind of jumping down right the floor of the the second level is like the ceiling right so you got to jump and Cannonball a little bit. You got to jump and go down and and make it. And usually that worked out really really well, um, except for this one time, where I, for whatever reason I just got distracted and it was it was just a, a, a happy perky nerdy you know middle school kid. And so I was just running and just sort of felt like, you know, I wasn't going to spread eagle. And I took the the concrete, like, divider right in the forehead and my feet went out from underneath me and I landed. So we can just picture what took place biologically speaking. My brain's inside my skull and it collided with a concrete barrier, right? That would seem concerning on one level. My spinal cord is inside like a bunch of bones, and I landed on them on another concrete floor on the back. So that would feel like, biologically, I would have two reasons to be concerned. One for my brain, one for my whole spinal cord. But can you tell me what went through my thoughts, what was the first thought that went through my mind when I picked myself up off the floor, having potentially damaged my brain and paralyzed myself on the ground, was my thought about any of those things, What did I think? Did anybody see me? I don't know if they did because I wasn't entirely conscious. (laughs) But I do think I picked myself up off the ground, so I think we were okay. I'm pretty sure a lot of people heard it. um, But isn't that weird? Have you ever had a moment like that? Where all of your concern ought to be for something entirely different, like your biological safety, but all you were worried about is how other people thought about you. That's what we're saying Peter is. In option one, that's what we're saying Peter is, right? That kind of a Peter I don't respect as much or admire as much. I can relate to him a lot, but I don't know that I can respect him a ton. This other guy I could respect a lot more. A guy who's away, worried Aware of the gospel, God had visited him and said the divisions between Jews and Gentiles represented by what you eat, uh, he gave him a whole vision to say, like that, that doesn't matter as much anymore. I want you to kind of think of these two, this group of people that you used to view as unclean. I don't want you to view them as unclean anymore. They're now welcome in the kingdom of God. That, Peter may have been withdrawing in this moment from the Gentiles that he was with, not wanting to eat with them, out of concern for his friends who were back in Jerusalem facing persecution. I could, I could admire that Peter a little bit more. And I do think it's likely that that's... I was convinced by Don, Don Carson. I hear that Mike wasn't, by the way, when he reviewed this with his community group. But that's okay, Mike can be wrong and he can let the rest of his small group know that he's wrong too, that's okay. Here's the thing I want you to know, for our topic today, our target today, for the pause on Galatians that we're going to kind of do right now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Peter was worried just about his reputation or he was actually doing things to try and protect his friend's safety. The Bible puts a category over this And Paul puts a category over this called the fear of man. And it condemns any moments when we are functioning not out of a fear of the Lord, where the Lord is our chief priority, we revere him over all. And so on this side, we're worried about primarily what God thinks about me, not what other people are thinking about me. Or all the way to this extreme, we revere the protection that God can give to those he loves more than we're afraid of the damage that people can do because they hate us. Either way... When we lose sight of the Lord, the fear of man takes over. So it's wherever you put Peter on the spectrum of the two options, the fear of man is the topic. Listen to the way the book of Hebrews addresses this. It says, he has said, this is the author of Hebrews saying that something God has told you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When the fear of man is functioning in our life, the answer to that question is everything. And so kids that are shy and kids that are attention grabbing, functioning with the same problem. Peer pressure in middle school, cancel culture today, all of it hits at the same kind of issue that ultimately the persecuted church is facing today. Will I trust God or will I do whatever I need to so that other people can't take from me what I value the most? That's the way the fear of man functions for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to just, for a moment, um, borrow a lot of help from a man named Ed Welch. He wrote a book It's one of those books that's so brilliantly titled that it feels like the title alone is worth buying the book. It's like when I heard of the book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, written to pastors. It's like, oh, yeah, right there. That's a really good title. Good job, John. (laughs) Ed wrote his book about the same way, and he called it when people are big and God is small. That's his summary of the fear of man. You have big people, whether... Those who could kill you or just those who are going to damage your reputation. And then by consequence, you have a small God. Ed said this, fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people or needing people fearing man or to use this phrase and this phrase is not gender specific by the way it just comes from proverbs chapter 29 the fear of man lays a snare but look at the structure of the proverb just in so many ways sometimes one phrase starts a thought the next completes it Or one starts a phrase, the next repeats it. Sometimes they just contrast it, but they're still making the same point. This one is a contrasting proverb. The fear of man lays a snare, but here's the contrast. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Being ensnared and being safe, contrasts. So what does that mean? That fearing man is contrasted by Trusting the Lord. Listen to Ed Walsh's quote again. Fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people or needing people. It's why I can walk into an aquarium that's filled with sharks That as a tunnel, will all the water goes over top of me, and I'm not tremendously worried about my safety because I trust the protection that's there. If God has pledged himself to protect his people and we live acting like he can't, we're ensnared, as Proverbs would say. We're living in such a way that ultimately, to go back to our text in Galatians, doesn't live in keeping with the gospel. It actually distorts it. It tells lies about God. So we can sing songs that have lines. We can memorize passages that have other lines. We can believe and hold to certain doctrines about God. But when we're so paralyzed and worried about what other people can do to us, our lives betray everything that we sing and declare and and memorize. You see the problem with that? That's why Paul called P- Peter a hypocrite. Now, I mentioned in the beginning that what I wanted to do was, excuse me, <coughs> what I wanted to do, oh, it's still there, um, was to uh, bring in a third text. Sometimes, uh, kind of like a, a, a good Dickens novel, right? People's flaws don't come out until they just get accented to the point of just total insanity. I mean, I've never met anybody like Scrooge, but Scrooge does a great job of being just the worst kind of greedy guy, right? Because that's the way Dickens wrote. He takes takes problems, he exaggerates them out, and just makes them all the more obvious to us, right? So that we can ask little questions about the little Scrooge-iness in our life, that kind of thing. I'm gonna go to kind of a Dickinsonian sort of passage. It's the third one that Jenna read for us and it's there in John chapter 12. We're gonna come back to Peter and Paul. We're gonna come back and ask some questions for ourselves about the fear of man. But I want you to see it in such stark contrast so that you understand a little bit more how insidious this can be in terms of what it costs us to follow Jesus and why we resist the idea. Listen in John 12. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Skip a few verses and you come to the diagnosis of that in chapter 42, or verse 42. Many even of the Pharisee, of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is one of the best ways that John has written his gospel. Sometimes you can't tell when Jesus stops speaking and John starts putting in his commentary because his commentary is just so brilliant throughout the story. And this is one of those brilliant moments, except for it's so indicting of so much of our behavior that it's really brilliant and really hard to read. Because what he said, starting in chapter, or chapter 12, verse 36, and ending in 43, is that Jesus had done everything for people to be able to believe who he was. He backed up with plenty of evidence, enough reason for people to be able to believe. And yet some people didn't. And the question is why? Look at the way it unfolds. Because there's a basic concern right there in verse 42. right? And, And it's real. It's a legit, what can man do to me kind of concern right there in verse 42. It says, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, that being put out of the synagogue, that may not sound like a big deal. Like, oh, fine. I don't go to your synagogue. I'll go to another synagogue. That's not the way things worked. In the Jewish realm, in each city, there was kind of one synagogue, save the te- Jerusalem where there was a the actual temple, right? But, but to be put out of the synagogue was to be put out of the kingdom of God, if you were a Jew, what the Pharisees were saying at this time was, if you start to follow Jesus, we're going we're to boot you out. Meaning, not just you can't come back to our building and hear scripture readings, not just that you can't be part of our community, you're going to get booted out of, one, the social structure that would exist around that Jewish kind of religious circle. But more than that, you're going to get booted out of the kingdom of God. You don't have our backing anymore to go down and make pilgrimage to the temple. You don't have the backing of the local religious leaders who are going to tell you what's, you know, how you're doing. You don't have the ability to hear God's word anymore. You don't have the ability to be able to understand what God wants for your life anymore. This is a real threat. That's the legit concern. To be put out of the synagogue would be something that the Pharisees could do to someone. And apparently it was enough of a threat that it was causing some people not to believe. Makes sense, right? But if that's the concern, here's the real cause. In verse 43, they loved the glory that comes from man more than glory that comes from God. And that's why I want a janitor to read the passage from Isaiah. Because what he quotes there comes all the way down then in verse 38, right in the middle of those two. We have in the beginning, 36 and 37, a group of people who had enough evidence but didn't believe. 42 and 43, a subset of them those who really wanted to believe in Jesus but were afraid of the Pharisees and because they were afraid of them, they didn't really put their faith in Jesus. They wouldn't publicly acknowledge Jesus. Why? Because they liked it when other people glorified them rather than trusting the glory that God could bring to their lives. That is a huge problem. When Jesus had said these things, going back to verse 36, he departed and hid himself from them. So they though they had done, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? or what Isaiah is saying. Is I saw the Lord. We remember this in chapter six. I saw everything about God. Visually, he blew me away. Auditorily, he blew me away. Everything about this moment left me dumbstruck and in awe before God, convinced of one thing I don't belong here, not at all. In that moment, Isaiah doesn't care what he has to confess. He doesn't care what other people think about him. He cares about one thing. How do I stand before this God who's the definition of glory? And right now, my only understanding is I am a sinful man and I come from a sinful people. I've got sinful lips and the people I hang out with have sinful lips. God, I just don't belong here. I belong with the sinners. And somehow, John is telling us that that overall sense of being in awe of the glory of God has to permeate those who believe or else their belief is not belief. This this is hard to have to swallow, but let's listen to John's commentary one more time. Like I said, it's both brilliant and difficult. They loved... The glory that comes from man, which is not a total problem all by itself. Let's think about ways that we know that we're supposed to actually glorify one another, to use an odd phrase. We're we're told that we're supposed to outdo one another in showing honor. We're told that we're supposed to express gratitude. We're supposed to point out evidences of grace. We're supposed to be encouraging to one another. What are we doing at moments like that? What we're doing is we're saying to people, I see the way you are functioning, and you're functioning the way God would function if he was kind of in that moment. That's something I want to commend in you. That's why parents are supposed to not necessarily bribe their kids' obedience, but certainly stoke it, reward it, where we see our kids trusting God, we want to encourage that on. We're called to spur one another on, to stir each other up. Those are all stories and and commands that get at this idea. When you're acting the way that God would act, when you're glorifying him through your behavior, you're in one sense sharing in the glory of what God created you for. You're meant to be his ambassador, his image in this moment. And as a child, as a student, as a friend, as an employee, you just did a great job, and I want to point that out to you. That's supposed to be part of a Christian community, a Christian family, Christian friendships. But the problem isn't that we do that or enjoy that. It's that we love that. We crave it. We depend on it, so that what we get from God is less significant than what we can get from each other. Remember a moment that I was driving down. I think with Josiah and Jace, we were driving down to the Dayton Church, and I was going to preach on idolatry. I was preaching on Psalm one hundred fifteen, and an illustration came to me that that it didn't quite ruin Jace's life, but. It was it was a hard moment I got to say because we were listening to the Peanuts movie the the most recent version of Snoopy and Charlie Brown and everything and if you've seen that movie, it, it was it was a lot of fun it was really nostalgic they did a great job you know in that movie, uh, they used uh, all the old clips of Snoopy. Every one of them that they had sampled, they used those and put them together to make Snoopy's voice in this new one. They made it look like the old comic strips. It was just, it was such a well-done movie. And when, when we first got it, we bought it for Jace. He loved it. We loved it. And we were listening to it, right? And so here's what's happening in my mind as I'm driving down to that, to that uh, church. I'm thinking about idolatry. I'm thinking about the ways that we take things, people, and events, and make them so significant that they matter to us more than God matters to us. That's the definition of idolatry. In the other ear, I have a story being told of a little boy who has to get the attention of the little red-haired girl And all throughout the movie, he's so worried about what other people think of him. And he fails over and over and over. And it just seems like, oh, poor Charlie Brown, this is just going to be a terrible thing. But what happens at the very end? Oh, what happens at the very end is that the little red-haired girl, she sees him. She affirms him. She validates him. And then at the end of the movie, everybody comes around and says, oh, Charlie Brown, you are something. Why? Because the little red-haired girl approved of you. Oh oh my gosh, how terrible. Zoe, never find that guy. That's what I would just say, right? Do not look for a spouse or a friend who's gonna view you with that kind of power in their life. Do you wanna be that person? That if you ever fail them, their whole self-image falls apart? What is that? That is the idolatrous Fear of man functioning when I love the glory that the little red-haired girl could give to me more than the glory that comes from God. And I had to talk to my boys about it. I was like, I'm sorry, guys. This is a terribly pagan movie. We can't watch it. We've watched it still. It's just we're watching it with our eyes open a little bit, you know? Why? Because in that moment, Charlie Brown loves the glory that comes from her more than the glory that comes from God, even though God's not in the movie at all. Ed Welch again. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress and threaten us. These three reasons have one bigger thing in common or one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is more powerful and significant than God, and out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us What to feel, think, and do. Back to Galatians. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, they... He gave them the power and right to tell him what to feel, think, and do. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was just, oh, it's just the fear of man and I could understand and I get it. I mean, we've all been there. No, that's not the way Paul views this. When he sees the overt threat this is to the gospel message when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel I said to Cephas before them all what are you doing? That's basically the summary of it if you want Darren Landers interpretation of verse 14 that's it that's what I think this whole passage the, the looking in, in, in the Dickinsonian sense of, of John chapter 12 this ought to shake us so that no matter what threat people face for you right now, whether being who you are is going to, because you belong to Jesus, not just because you're a jerk and you're trying for some free pass and you want to blame God, don't do that, okay? But if you actually are going to follow Jesus and it's going to cost you your reputation on one end, may this passage bolster our fear of the Lord which is the only antidote to the fear of man. If you're in a spot where something is actually threatened a little bit more than just your reputation. If you're moving kind of potentially along with Peter, along that spectrum of not just being worried what people think about you, but actually trying to protect a job, a promotion, something along those lines, and you actually have to take a stand for something like this, may this passage bolster your fear of the Lord, which is the only antidote to the fear of man. But if it hasn't yet, Let me just unpack with you three tragedies that will take place if you let the fear of man run roughshod in your life. If you live never to be canceled, if you live always to be approved of, here are the three things that will happen. First, if we fear people more than God, then we love people more than God. Do you see the logic behind that? Because the quote that I wrote before was all about all the negative stuff people could do. Let me me look at it again. It's just two back there, Mike. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, threaten, or oppress us. Let's just flip those around and talk about it in terms of love. We love people because they can welcome and accept us and justify us. We love people because they accept and make us feel warm. We love people because they bless us and edify us. What's that? Jesus said, that's not love. That's using somebody. That's to use his Sermon on the Mount kind of language. That's pagan love. That's the world the love does. I'm going to give you 20 bucks for Christmas and you're going to give me 20 bucks for Christmas and both of us get to feel generous even though it's cost us nothing. I'm going to invite you to my house and you're going to invite me to your house. And Jesus said, don't throw a party that way. Don't trade favors. Don't be one hand washing the other. How does that, where's your sacrifice? You just invested into something you were going to get back. That's just smart. There's nothing Christian about that. So fear of man and Loving man, using people, really has the same thing. And so at the end of the day, if we fear people more than God, then ultimately we love people more than God. And that's idolatry. The second thing that happens, though, is that if we love people more than God, we then ultimately poison our relationships with others. You ever talk to a parent who just brags their kid up a little too much and you're like, at some point we stop talking about your kid. Are we talking about you now? It's the Incredibles, right? This is not about you! But if everything is about us either being so afraid of losing what people can give us or so eager to get from somebody else what we think we need, then every one of our relationships becomes toxic It becomes poisoned by this self-love, this process of not leading and serving and caring the way that God has called us to, not to self-sacrifice, but to some sense of just using other people to get what we want out of them. And at the end of the day, if we're stuck in these kind of toxic and relational cycles, then we distort and we invalidate the gospel. See, what I wanted to make sure we didn't do in the book of Galatians is pass over this moment that's kind of awkward and just be like, oh, well, let's just never talk about that again. I'm not sure why Paul had to bring that up. But instead to enter into it and say, if this was such a big deal and such a danger for Peter and danger for Barnabas and a danger for the rest of them, that Paul had to call it out, well, let's just, let's just get called out too. hmm?" Are you, are you doing this? One of the things I was so pleased about yesterday and so proud of, I think, you know, you don't want a proud pastor, but you kind of want a proud pastor. I was really proud of our guys yesterday. I felt in individual voices and in a collective energy, a sense of men saying, masks are gone. We're not really content anymore with being half-heartedly known, we're not content anymore with just sort of sitting on the sidelines and kind of pretending that we're going to do this thing together. Let's let's really dive in together. Stop pretending. Stop using each other, fearing each other. Let's, Let's dive into what the gospel calls the gospel. Confessing truths about God and confessing truths about us being willing to admit our shortcomings, and being able to look together to Jesus for our help. I heard that in the guys, and I was so grateful to realize there's just one way that that's happening among us here. Guys, as you, as you go out today, and we're, as we move towards the picnic, and, and you, you turn the corner, and you see the stuff for the community groups, if you're thinking of bailing, I would just encourage you maybe rethink that. Find a moment, a context, a relationship this year where you can dive into this kind of a relationship where you don't have to fake things and you don't have to use people, but you can genuinely serve others and be served by them in the process of enjoying, not distorting the gospel together. As you think about ways of serving this year, maybe serve in ways that are most needed, not the ones that make you feel most affirmed. It might be that the church's greatest needs are not your greatest strength, but you're going to do better helping where there's just real need rather than the spot where you feel like you get most affirmed. It's these moments. It's, it's the look on the guy's faces when I used to talk about, uh, you know, preaching training here at the church, and I'd say, great, I just want you to teach Sunday school for like six months. What are you talking about? Well, you, you may have a gift of teaching, but you'll, you'll prove it out whether or not you can explain the gospel to a, you know, to a second grader. If you can do that, then you'll probably get yourself prepped for the pulpit a little bit more. Oh, that's, that's the way of thinking about things. Guys, if this is the way we structured our lives and we let fearing God shape the rest of our motivations, I think we can avoid the first speed bump that really comes up in this book. Because we don't want to fall prey to the problem that Peter and others were coming to. In this little bit of time too, there's no way I've exhausted every ramification of what it would be like to have the fear of man over us. James talks about picking favorites, right? We've got to be very careful how we do that. There's a lot of things to be careful about. You're going to suss these things out by talking about them together with other people who know you well. But let me remind you, no matter where you find yourself on this spectrum, of one truth that will just never disappoint. And these are words from Charles Spurgeon. He says, we will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. So keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon thy mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, I want to <coughs> thank you first. Thank you for help with my voice. But Lord, more than that, thank you for opening up your word freshly to us. Lord, we come in with fuzzy eyes and plugged up ears with hearts that have hardened over and become more like the world. And we just needed you again to help us to see you through your word. And Lord, I'm asking that you would help us then as well to apply what we've heard. May we... Love your glory and the ways we can participate in it. No matter what it costs us and how we appear so that we can ultimately glorify you and keep our allegiance with you to the end. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.